Well, thanks for hanging with me so long. A lot of good stuff to talk about. Of course, crash course, trying to do it too fast, too much. But this will raise some interesting questions for you. Um, I want to suggest a website if you're interested in additional information. I don't always agree with what's put there, but who does agree with whatever's put anywhere? Uh, but uh, Text and Canon, T-E-X-T, a-N-D-C-A-N-O-N dot org. Uh, the Phoenix Seminary has a text and canon institute, and one of the things they're trying to do is to uh, present information about the history of the Bible uh, in formats that will be uh, a little bit easier to understand. Sometimes they succeed, sometimes they don't. Uh, but there would be some uh, interesting things to look at. They have very short uh, entries uh, on a number of different topics that are related to the text and the canon of the Bible. And um, this is a relatively new organization, and uh, they plan to continue doing a number of things related to that. Um, they all, I have not had a chance to look at a book that uh, has been written by one of the directors of the Texan Canon Institute, but uh, there's also a book, How We Got the Bible. I think it's by um, Mead, M-E-A-D-E. -E. Uh, it's probably pretty good um, and would be more up-to-date than, uh, uh, than Lightfoot's book. Uh, but I've not had a chance to look at it, so I don't know how... how user-friendly it is. The yes, text, T-E-X-T, and A-N-D, canon, C-A-N-O-N, dot org, O-R-G. Okay, what does it mean for the Bible to be inspired? And of course, we've got some uh, things to talk about. Uh, and before we even get to what's on the slide here, I've already hinted at the idea that what the Christians in the first century thought about inspiration is different than what a lot of American Christians today think about inspiration. And that's partly due to a very long process. Um, modern views of inspiration are actually sort of shaped around discussions that were going on in the third and fourth century um, about in what sense is the Bible God's work. And uh, you, you get some strange ideas that develop, again, primarily because what we had were people who were arguing for what they thought God had to do rather than paying attention to what God had actually done. Right? And, and this is a constant problem. It's been a constant problem throughout Christianity. We always have an idea of what God could and could not do. Right? The, even the disciples themselves are having that problem. Right? Uh, even after Peter gets hit over the head three times with a blanket full of unclean animals, he still doesn't get the idea that he should go with these Gentiles. And, and God has to verbally speak to them and say, hey, they're downstairs. Go get them. Um, so there's always this sense of 
God would not. Uh, and the Bible constantly challenges us by pointing out that, well, God does and did. And it seems to me that that's the challenge, is to pay attention to the evidence that God has given us and then, then work from there. We, we, we can't improve on what God has done, and yet I am constantly surprised at how often we're trying to make arguments for, for God. Uh, I just I just think that's dangerous in a number of different ways. Okay. Um, one of the things related to inspiration and how we got the Bible and stuff, it, you may have heard the language of uh, divine preservation. Now, I firmly believe that God's active in the church, and so God has been active not in just the comp composing of the biblical books, but also their dissemination. In history, I believe God is active. But the language of divine preservation actually comes from the presupposition that God would not allow any damage to his word. But all of our evidence suggests otherwise. What has happened is people have said, oh, I can't imagine that God would allow this to happen, so God didn't. Even though we have lots and lots of evidence that God did. Let's think of it a different way, because in my opinion, this is just my opinion, I think God is more interested in his people than he is in the Bible. Now, there, there's a connection there, they're important. But where's the argument of divine preservation of the church? Has God preserved the perfect church for 2,000 years? I'll tell you right now, the Bible's in much better shape than the church is. Because God is with us, right? because the core of the gospel is God is willing to get his hands dirty with us. God's willing to put up with quite a bit from us. Um, and, and so, just, just to think about it, you know, what is God doing? What is God willing to do? And let, let's take what he's given us and learn from it, rather than imposing outside measurements of our own modern or postmodern era onto what we think God must have done. We know what he did. Let's go with that. In terms of inspiration and beyond inspiration, so faith. Faith centers around two ideas expressed by Latin nerd words. Now, I'm not into Greek and Latin nerd words. I don't think they're helpful uh, because they don't communicate much. Um, you know, what, what does it mean, right? So um, incarnation, inspiration, okay? Both are connected to the story of creation. Uh, incarnation is, is talking about how God takes this mud and breathes into its spirit, and God, in a sense, becomes flesh. In Adam and Eve, right? Let's make them in our image. But most perfectly in Jesus Christ, right? the unique Son of God. Then we've got the term inspiration, which is also from the same idea of creation, God taking mud, breathing in, inspiring. The word spirit is the Latin word for breath. So breathing in. 
okay? And it's expressing something important, okay? And in my opinion, all of Christian faith is rooted in that idea. If we firmly believe that when we are baptized, we receive the Spirit of God, we have become incarnate. And we are to live incarnated lives. God in the flesh. In John chapter 20, after Jesus' resurrection, he appears to the disciples in a locked room and he breathes on them and says, receive the Spirit, a new creation, because the Gospel of John is all about a new creation. Opening words of the Gospel of John? In the beginning. Opening words of Genesis. So we use these Latin nerd words, and because they're Latin nerd words, sometimes we forget what, what they're all about. But it's about God with us. Now, incarnation is generally attached to what God does in his people, especially Jesus Christ. And inspiration is the word we use for what God does with leather and paper and ink. This idea that somehow God is working through this and breathing, right? The Word of God is living and active. Now, I probably should point out that where Scripture says Word of God, it doesn't always mean and actually hardly ever means Bible. Uh, but um, so... Both the ideas of, of God becoming flesh, God animating flesh, are perfected in Christ. Right? But we, we participate in that. Okay? And we seek to be like Christ. Mainline Christians basically agree that there are three ways to learn about Christ, to know Christ better. And we have a human component and a divine component. Okay? The human components are the Bible, the church, and the individual believer. The divine component is the spirit, the spirit, and guess what? The spirit. Now, I have put these in a particular order. Uh, one of the reasons we have different denominations is because Christians don't always agree on which one should be emphasized more. Now, you might say, well, let's make them all equal. Well, that would be nice, but nobody really wants to. I don't know why. Okay. Um, and so people will have it in a different order. Now, here's, here's my opinion. Okay, This is my opinion. You don't have to believe me. Okay. Uh, but the reason I put it in this order is because from my own experiences and from the experiences of church history, um, there seems to be sort of an extent to which the human component can wrestle with the spiritual component. So, I firmly believe that God's Spirit dwells within me, but I also know I'm a stinker. I know that I will fight against God's Spirit. And I love the fact that God is in me. I love the fact that the Spirit has transformed me. I am so much better now than I once was. 
but I'm not yet perfect. I'm still on my way. And there are times when I allow myself to overrule the Spirit of God. And judging from church history, that tends to be widespread. So I have a hard time placing the greatest emphasis on the Spirit in me because of my capacity to, you know, squelch the Spirit. The Spirit in the church. I firmly believe the Spirit works in the community of God's people. But even communities of God's people can tend to override, overrule, go against the Spirit in the community. And I think that happens, it doesn't happen as often as it does with individuals, but I don't think it happens as often as it does in Scripture. Christ is the perfect mix, 100% human, 100% God. That's the traditional statement, and I firmly believe that. And I think the Bible is very close to that, very much a product of God, but also has some human components to it. Human components in terms of the authors, human components in terms of the copiers or printers today, or translators. We've, en we've engaged some of those issues and, and we could go on <laughs> with a long, 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 long list. But I, I just want you to know this is, all Christians tend to believe that we get to know Christ because the Spirit is working in the Bible, in the church, and in the individual believers. Uh, but I well, also have a lot more faith in the work of God in Scripture than I do in anything else. Um, but that, that's me. But I, I think that's, that's an, an idea that's, that's worth wrestling with. Now, with regard to what we've been talking about, and especially this focus on the divine involvement, right? Again, a lot of these attacks are on the human components. But if we are correct about living incarnated and inspired lives because of the presence of God within us in the work of the Spirit in the Bible and the church and the individual, then if individuals made or make errors, the Spirit still works in and through those errors. The emphasis should be on the divine power. Now, we, we can expect human error to err as human. If the church made or makes errors, the Spirit still works in and through those errors. Thank goodness. Or actually, thank God. And if the Bible contains errors, the Spirit still works in and through those errors. Therefore, arguments against the authority of the Bible based on error are illogical. The focus is on what God's doing. And as I've tried to show, and, and may show again in a few examples, uh, some of these arguments from error are just also wrong. They aren't error that they're actually pointing out. So, again, I'm repeating this for a reason, right? Uh, current challenges to biblical authority focus on the human product. 
either ignoring or rejecting the divine power. And we just cannot let that happen. But, but that's where it is. And it's unfortunate that we have so many people who so readily are persuaded to move away from God's word by attacks that supposedly emphasize human error or, or just human involvement. So we read this scripture at the beginning of the day, 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17. It's really the only passage in scripture that talks about inspiration. So it, it's sort of surprising uh, in terms of the different doctrines of inspiration that have developed over the years, uh, considering that uh, there's not a whole lot to go on. Um, what does it mean for scripture to be God-breathed? Okay, inspired, right? Spirit breathed in. Okay? That's what Paul claims. And it's, he's making up a word, probably. Okay? But the reference, right? Meaning is determined by context. In a Jewish Christian writing, the context of God breathed is always creation. Okay? God breathing in. Okay? He's... Uh, basically taking two words from the Greek translation of the Bible and sticking them together and creating a new word that sort of encapsulates the whole. Now, what does it mean for, God, uh, for Scripture to be God-breathed? It's whatever God's doing with creation. That's, in some sense, the Bible is an act of God's creation. He's making it living and active. Now, that doesn't tell us much other than that God is somehow working through this in a way he doesn't work through a car repair manual. Okay? There's something unique about this and what God's doing with this. Now, humans don't like vacuums. Science doesn't either. Nature doesn't. So we, we want to fill in the, the details. We're not given any details, but, but we want to fill them in. The problem is when we try and fill in details for God, we're usually wrong. Okay? Um, and I think that's, uh, that's often the case with, uh, with how we have viewed Scripture being God-breathed. A lot of the types of things that, that Christians are trying to promote with the language of inspiration and God breathed, is that the Bible should be a scientific or historical textbook. Which it clearly isn't. It wasn't even intended to be. Right? Going back to John chapter 21. Right? If the gospel writers wanted to tell us about Jesus, they would have used up all the books of the world. but they all chose to omit 99.9% .9 of everything Jesus said and did. On purpose. That wasn't an accident. On purpose. So clearly what the gospel writers are trying to do is not necessarily what we are trying to make them do. Uh, and that presents some problems. And we'll, we'll talk about that some more tomorrow. Okay. What the word God breathes, what the word inspiration means, is that God is animating this word. 
this book. And then Paul goes on and says, okay, so what? And he says, it's wisdom that leads to salvation through faith in Jesus. That's point one. Now there's a point two and three, but I'm pretty sure points two and three are describing point one. How do we have wisdom that leads to salvation? By the way, for Paul, salvation is not, I'm now able to go to heaven. Salvation is, we are in the kingdom now, and kingdom people do kingdom things. Salvation for Paul is something in the present. That is a part of being transformed to be like Christ. So how does that happen? We have scripture. And again, he's talking specifically about the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament here. And the purpose of scripture is not to prove scientific arguments. It's for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training God's people in righteousness. That's what it's for. And sometimes it's sort of sad because I I think sometimes people get deluded into thinking that defending certain ideas of the Bible is more important than living it. And that's a problem. Part of salvation is perfecting people to accomplish every good work. It is to get us to be doing God's ministry. It is to get us to be participants, God's fellow workers, right? God with us. God has chosen, and I'm not sure why. I don't know why my wife married me. You can talk to John and Randa Skipworth. They're not sure why either. One of the things that astounds me on almost a daily basis is that God chose to work with me. And he's chosen to work with you. And the invitation is open for him to work with all of humanity if they would just accept that. And our job is to be doing every good work. Or as Paul says in Ephesians 2, the works that God has prepared for us even before creation. What are those works? They're not my works. They're not Kurt's works. They're God's works. And the only way I can do them is if I have the Spirit in me. Kurt tried to do that before he had the Spirit. didn't work out so well. Moses tried to do that before he had the Spirit, before he had the burning bush. didn't work out so well. Saul, who became Paul, tried to do it before he had the Spirit, and it didn't turn out so well. Incarnated, inspired lives. The purpose of this book is to transform us to be like Christ, to be like God, to share his very characteristics. It is a revelation of who God is. And that is supposed to be our focus. It certainly was Paul's. Okay, so what is the purpose for God breathed scripture? It's not a science textbook. We might call it a divine training manual, although that does not do justice either. But it's closer to a divine training manual than it is to a scientific textbook. And we need to remember that we cannot force modern expectations on an ancient text. God decided to reveal this thousands of years ago 
not yesterday. And he's addressing the needs and the expectations of the original recipients, not us. Now, what that means is we have to do a little bit of homework so we can sort of understand what, what's going on, what's been happening over the years, what, what has changed. Uh, Book of Revelation is an excellent example of this. Book of Revelation is a particular type of literature that only existed for a few hundred years. And once people forgot what type of literature it was, people started interpreting it in really crazy ways. And we've even done them better. <laughs> we got some really crazy ways to read uh, Revelation. Okay. That has nothing to do with what the original intent and the original message was. Uh, but doing a little bit of homework or relying on scholars who have done the homework for you uh, you can have better understanding of what's going on here and what is the purpose and what's the meaning. Um, trying to understand how should this apply to us today. Okay. And um, we'll talk about that more tomorrow. So the modern view of inspiration, this is just sort of a blanket statement. The modern view of inspiration is not the biblical view. It's not what we find actually in the Bible. Uh, I already mentioned the fact that uh, you know people in the first century believed that Jeremiah was inspired, but they didn't pick one version of it over the other. Um, and here are some common misperceptions from today, misconceptions. Number one, God's word is the Bible. Now, you're going to have to hold on. Don't go boo and hissing on me yet. Right. One misconception is God's word is the Bible. And what I mean by that is the totality of God's Word is the Bible. And also, there's this tendency to believe that inspiration means lack of human error. Which, which is hard to believe if you know the evidence. Instead, at least with regard to those two points, the Bible is God's Word, small w, but God's Word, capital W, is bigger. In the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the... Is it talking about the Bible? No, it's talking about Jesus. Even the Jews in the first century knew this. Okay? We encounter the word law in the New Testament. It refers to the law of Moses most of the time. If it doesn't refer to the law of Moses, it tells you what it's referring to. In first century Judaism, there were five different ideas that could be expressed by the word law or law of Moses. One was 613 commands. The thou shalts and thou shalt nots. For those of you who don't know 1611 English, I'm sorry. Do this, don't do this. Uh, the Pharisees counted up those and said there are 613. However, Jews hardly ever referred to the 613 commands as law, Torah. It's mostly Christians who have reduced the law to 613 commands, not Jews. Typically, the bare minimum that is meant when a Jew refers to Torah in the first century 
is the first five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But that's not the most common reference. More frequently, law refers to written revelation, what we would call the Old Testament. So, for example, in Romans, Paul can quote Psalms and Proverbs and say, just as the law says. Or quote Isaiah and say, as the law says. But they would go further than that because they believe that everything that had a physical presence was a shadow of the real presence in the spiritual realms. So if the law of Moses in written form is physical, there must be a law of God, or as Paul is going to call it, the law of the spirit of life in Christ, Romans 8. There must be a bigger spiritual law in the heavenly realms. And Paul refers to that too. It's primarily Protestant Christianity that has turned law into a negative thing. So much so that when Paul says that uh, uh, the, the law is holy and righteous and spiritual and good in Romans 7, we pretend that that's not what he's saying. Or Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, I did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. And I have been in two Bible classes where the teacher, different teachers, different churches, where the response was exactly the same. Jesus said, I did not come to destroy the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them, which we know means to destroy them. Jesus apparently didn't know that. Where, where, where are you getting this additional knowledge? Um, we've created this very negative view of the law that you just can't find in Scripture. What you will find is Paul very negatively rejecting the imposition of the law in its physical form on Gentiles. It's good for Jews, but the spiritual law is good for everybody. Now there's a fifth one the oral traditions of the Jews, mostly Pharisees. The Pharisees started with good intentions, as so many of us do. They said, okay, here's, here's God's word. We don't want people to break God's word, so we're going to build, this is their language, a hedge around the law. We're going to build a protective fence, a barrier that'll keep people from getting there. And so if we're, going to, if we're not supposed to work on the Sabbath, we're going to figure out what it means to work on the Sabbath. So they go through Scripture and find all the words for work. And they list those things. You can't do these things on the Sabbath. Well, that doesn't solve all the problems because there's all sorts of other questions about things. And so they expand on that to make sure nobody breaks the Sabbath. So on the Sabbath, you can't write two letters of the alphabet next to each other, but you can write one on the wall and one on the floor. That's not work. Huh? When Jesus gets in trouble for breaking the law, he never breaks the law of Moses. He always breaks the Jewish oral traditions. And the Pharisees had created the idea that God gave the law in two forms on Mount Sinai. One law for dummies. You, know, you go get those books at Barnes and Noble, such and such for dummies. That's, that's, that's what this is. 
and then God whispered in Moses' ear the true esoterical, more spiritual, more detailed law. And Moses whispered it in Joshua's ear, and Joshua the next guy, and the next guy all the way down. Ending up with, you had some Jews in the first century who firmly believed that, in a sense, the oral traditions were more inspired than the written. And Jesus gets in trouble because he's not willing to follow the oral traditions. He challenges them. And they accuse him of breaking the law, but he's, he's not. Uh, so you, you, you have, you know, th this is a problem that resurfaces throughout history because it's part of the human component. And sometimes we're more human than we should be, even though we've got God's spirit within us. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Um, so the Bible is God's word. I, I firmly believe that this is God's word, but God's word is much bigger than this. Right? Much bigger. And this points us to what's much bigger. This points us to Christ. This points us to the spiritual realities that are beyond there. And sometimes we get so focused on this that it blocks our sight from what's really the aim and the goal and the purpose. And we do some weird stuff because we are hyper-obsessed with this rather than the message. Not the paraphrase I was talking against earlier. <laughs> the message of the Bible. Okay? Also, in inspiration doesn't mean lack of human error. Inspiration means infusion of God's power. It's God's spirit being breathed in. Uh, we need to focus on what this is about. It is God animating his message, his revelation to us, and working through it. As I pointed out at the end of the last session, right? even when we don't pay attention to the entirety of the Bible, God's still working with what we get. Now, I think we should focus on the entirety of the Bible, but even when we don't, God's working with what we get if we are in his word. And I've had some discussions with some of you who've talked about how just getting people in the word has been transformative. The focus is on God's power, not human weakness. There was a crisis among conservative evangelical churches in America back in the 70s. People wanted to sort of specify, what do we mean when we say God's word is inspired? And so they invited all of the top scholars that came from conservative evangelical churches to gather together and hammer out a doctrinal statement about inspiration. And so there was this big convention in Chicago back uh, 1979-1980 and the scholars worked together and they hammered out what is called the Chicago Statement. Now it's, it's full, you can Google it if you want, uh, there's a lot more to it, but some of the key language in the Chicago Statement was the Word of God is inspired in the original autographs and in the original contexts. 
Now that made a lot of conservative evangelical Christians in America very, very angry because it did not express what they thought God had done in Scripture. Now, what it does express is what God had done in Scripture. <laughs> Just didn't match up with their expectations. They were very angry at the scholars um, because this seemed to leave too much wiggle room. Now, what does it mean inspired in the original autographs? The idea is that whatever the original text of a book was, was inspired, but not necessarily a later version that has some problems with it. Let me see if I remember. 1 Samuel 13. The worst preserved books of the Bible that we have in Hebrew are 1 and 2 Samuel. Not sure why that's the case. But here is 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 1 in the Hebrew. Well, in English from the Hebrew. Saul was one year old when he became king, and he reigned two years over Israel. <laughs> now, some of you get in ahead of me. Hold on. We know elsewhere that Saul was a head taller than most Israelite men. And so if he became king when he was one year old, you've got to feel sorry for mama. <laughs> that had to hurt. And he reigned till he was three years old. Obviously, there's a problem there. Now, some of your Bibles are going to read differently. But they're not going to read differently because they're relying on the Hebrew. They're going to rely differently because they're relying either upon the Old Greek translation or the Syriac translation. But it's clear that both of those translations are guessing. We don't know how old. Saul was when he began. We don't know how long he reigned from this verse. The, the passage is corrupt, and it was corrupt a long time ago. And so the Greek translation was done before the time of Christ, the Syriac translation soon after the time of Christ, and they're just guessing, but they know the Hebrew has to be wrong. Right? So they're, they're trying to put in some educated guesses, and your English versions will tend to provide some help with those guesses. Now, what the authors of the Chicago Statement are saying is that the Hebrew manuscripts that all say he was one year old when he reigned and reigned two years, are that verse is not the inspired version of that verse. The inspired version of the verse had the accurate information, but we don't know that information any longer. Whereas some people would have to argue, no, Saul was one year old when he became king. Okay. If you have this mindset that whatever is in our Bibles has to be straight from God and exact, makes for a, a much more fun Bible class for three-year-olds. <laughs> right. And then the original context. Right. 
that uh, to understand what's going on with the Bible, we need to understand the context of what's being said, when it's being said, why it's being said. That there's much more to understanding inspiration than just saying these are the words. And although I don't agree with everything in the Chicago Statement, I, I thought for the starting premise of the group, I thought they did a very good job of trying to wrestle with the actual evidence. Whereas the people who wanted a very different statement weren't wrestling with what was actually in Scripture. They just had preconceived notions about what Scripture should look like. There was such an uproar that I. Howard Marshall, one of the British scholars that helped with this, I. Howard Marshall wrote a book called Biblical Inspiration. It used to be out of print. Several people are now doing reprints. It is an outstanding book. It runs you through some of the challenging issues that require a different perspective on what we understand as biblical inspiration. Okay. So I, I recommend it. You should be able to get it for pretty cheap on the internet. But you see the publication date, 1983. He's responding directly to the very strong negative reaction to the Chicago Statement okay, and trying to help everyday people understand why their view of inspiration cannot be true because it doesn't fit the facts. So let's talk about inspiration. We're going to use, I know some of you think Charlie Brown's Christmas special is scripture. Uh, I know this is going to step on a lot of people's toes. Now, I could have put anything up there, but Charlie Brown Christmas, I, I like Charlie Brown Christmas. It's, it's moving to me. I'm a Christian. How can it not be moving? Now, as a Bible scholar, it is annoying as well. But, uh, um, but the Charlie Brown Christmas story is a great example of some of the problems that we have. If we think that the Gospels are written to just give us a history of Christ, then what we need is to squeeze them all together. Okay? And people have tried that over the millennia. Around the year 150, a guy named Tatian creates the Dia Tesseron. Dia is Greek for through, Tesseron is for. How do we create one gospel through the four? Right? So he already knows there's only four gospels, but we really want one gospel. So he creates one gospel through four. Uh, had a discussion about F. Lagarde Smith's sort of chronological Bible. He's going to try and do the same thing, a little bit different, but still trying to do the same thing, representing sort of the historical span of Scripture. Uh, Charlie Brown Christmas does the same thing. Uh, the, the story of Jesus in Matthew and the story of Jesus in Luke is squeezed together into a single story. A single story in which we lose a lot of valuable information. Because God inspired Matthew to write Matthew. So we would do a lot better to pay attention to Matthew's message than to smash it together with Luke's message. And we would do better to pay attention to Luke's message than smash it together with Matthew's message. For example, 
the Gospel of Matthew begins, this is the book of the generations, quoting Genesis, of Jesus Christ, son of... You would think, but that's the Gospel of Mark. See, we're already doing it. <laughs> son of David, son of Abraham, which is a great Jewish interpretive move. Jewish interpretation of Scripture in the first century said if you have two passages that have significant phrasing in common, you should use them to interpret one another. Best example is the two greatest commands. Love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. Those belong together. Son of David, one from your seed shall sit on the throne of Israel forever. Son of Abraham, one from your seed, uh, through your seed, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Jesus is going to be the solution for Jews and Gentiles. And then we've got a genealogy that focuses mostly on Jews and Jewish royal figures. But then we get four characters we're not expecting. Who are they? You don't need to name them. Just what's unusual about them? Women. They're women. And they're all Gentiles. Son of David, son of Abraham, four Gentile women through whom salvation history would not take place without their presence. And then Matthew says, yeah, Jesus was born and skips ahead two years. And we get the wise guys showing up. Okay. The Magi. Magi are Gentile royal figures. And they have come to worship Jesus. Matthew's all about Gentiles. All about Gentiles. You don't get that in Charlie Brown's Christmas special. Right? Luke is about God reaching out to the oppressed and marginalized and the overlooked of society. We have people singing about God sending the rich away empty-handed and filling the poor with good things. We have God tearing dynasties away from worldly powers and exalting the lowly. And we've got the birth announcement of Jesus Christ sent to shepherds. Nobody likes shepherds. They're at the bottom of the social scale. And that's just the beginning of a gospel and the following story of the church where the people of God say, you know, God's not really interested in people like that. And God says, oh, yes, I am. His disciples are constantly trying to restrict the kingdom. Luke uses the word hinder. And God says, no, the borders are a lot bigger than you think. And in the book of Acts, the very last word, at least in Greek, is unhindered. Doesn't matter what happens to people in the church. Doesn't matter what happens to the church. God remains unhindered. The power of God. And we don't get that story in Charlie Brown's Christmas. But Luke's setting that all up with the way he tells the birth story of Jesus Christ. There's value in taking what God has given us and treating it in the way that God has given it to us. 
reading the Gospel of John. John's, John's a weird gospel, okay? But he wants to be. He's doing that on purpose. He makes it clear as you go through the story that if you read his gospel at the superficial, hyper-literal, historical level, you're reading it wrong. Because everybody who reads Jesus at that level loses their faith. Nicodemus. On the outside, oh, he looks faithful to God. But by the time the story is ended, he's clearly an adulterer spiritually. Then we've got, in the very next chapter, this Samaritan woman who looks very unfaithful, but by the time the story's over, she's the bride of Christ. Because if you haven't noticed, the heroes of the biblical story all find their wives at the local watering hole. And John is all about new creation. And there are seven signs. And there, are, there are seven I am statements. There's a whole bunch of stuff going on. It's pretty clear that what is called the first miracle of Jesus is not his first miracle. Mom already must have an inkling that he can do some strange things. What John's doing is saying, I'm going to lay out for you some miracles and I want want you to count them. And not so much miracles, but signs. Signs are different than miracles. There are multiple miracles, but seven signs. Things that John calls signs in the book. What is the first sign? Water to wine. What's the first sign in the Exodus story? By the way, in the Exodus story, they're not called plagues. They're called signs. What's the first sign? Water to blood. Water to wine, water to blood. We do like wine better because Jesus is better. I mean, Moses is pretty impressive, but water to wine, a whole lot better than water to blood. What's the last of the signs, the, the ten signs in the Exodus story? Death of the firstborn. The last, the seventh sign in the Gospel of John is the death, burial, and resurrection of the firstborn. Which is better, the death or the death, burial, and resurrection? Yeah, resurrection. And if we don't pay attention to how John is putting together his story, we miss this powerful explanation from John about how Jesus is the true fulfillment of law. He is the Word, the spiritual full reality of the Word. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth through Jesus Christ, which is really ironic because grace and truth is the description of the law in the Bible that Moses received. But the difference is Moses got the physical copy. Jesus is the spiritual true reality that then takes on flesh and tabernacles among us. And if you don't remember what the tabernacle is, it's God's mobile home. Jesus tabernacling among us. He is with us, bringing a new creation. And so he breathes in the Spirit to his disciples in that closed room. John's doing stuff, and he's doing it intentionally. And if we don't pay attention to that, if we just think that John's just trying to write history, we have missed the whole point of John, and he tells us that. I don't know how we can miss that, but... And then, you just think of the death of Judas... 30 pieces of silver, 
Judas betraying, that's all there. But in Matthew, uh, Judas returns the money and hangs himself. In Acts, Judas buys a field with the money and falls headlong and splits open in the middle. Then his guts pour out. It's a very graphic description. Now, the typical approach is uh, we've got to make sure that those two are not contradictory. We've got to make sure that they somehow agree. So sort of the common one is um, Judas bought a field or the priest bought a field with a cliff on it, which doesn't make for a great field. I mean, it's, it's very hard to hoe. Um, and that there's a tree at the top of the cliff and Judas hangs himself there and eventually the rope breaks and then his body goes. That's, that's an interesting attempt. Um, but what we look for is, you know, are there particular reasons that the story might be told differently in Matthew and Acts? Right? Just like Matthew has Jesus ride two donkeys into town. He's doing that for a very specific reason. And in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew's dealing with the curse of the one who hangs upon a tree. But he wants to show that in one case, it brings a blessing to Jews and Gentiles. And in the other case, it's a curse. Um, Judas and Matthew is being contrasted with Christ. Two different people hanging on a tree, two, different, two very different results. And so it's likely that Matthew has sort of told Judas's death story in that way to highlight the importance of Jesus's reversing of that curse. Now in Luke, in Luke, money is important. What you do with your possessions is, is for Luke one of the most important spiritual measurements. If Luke were alive today and he asked him, say, Luke, how do I know I'm spiritually mature? He would basically say, show me your credit card balance. Um, and what you do with possessions means a whole lot. Hey, Barnabas gets his good name because he's selling his possessions to help the poor. And Ananias and Sapphira are going, oh, we want a good name too, but not at the cost of actually helping people. But what Luke does is he connects the story of Judas to the story of Ananias and Sapphira, which itself is connected to the story of Achan in the Old Testament so that what one does with one's possessions and fields is an expression of where you are spiritually. And so it's likely that Matthew's right about the money that Judas returned it, but Luke wants to make sure that Judas is fully culpable for the possession, the purchase of the field, because it highlights how darkened his heart is. And so we have the death of Judas, but it's told in two different ways because the death of Judas is being, explained, is being used as two different examples. One is that if you don't use your possessions for God's purposes, you are under the power of Satan. That's Luke. The other is, if you look at two people hanging from a tree, there's only one that brings the blessing that was promised to David and Abraham. 
very powerful message. And the gospel writers weren't caught up in historical definitions of history and facts. They understood that what mattered is the meaning of those facts, right? Um, and, and we sort of know that. If, if I talk to a woman about her child and, and the birth, I'm going to find out how many hours in labor, right? I, I'm going to find out some of the details I really don't care about. But after she gets over that, I'm just being silly. They will always tell me what a great woman or what a great man their child is. Because what matters is the meaning, not the data. Right? It's the meaning, not the data. And the gospel writers are trying to tell us things very important about the meaning of Jesus. And not just the meaning of Jesus out there or the meaning of Jesus back then, but the meaning of Jesus in here. They are writing to transform people by offering insight into God becoming flesh through Scripture, which is also flesh, but God working through it. And so, one view of inspiration forces us to pretend that there are no differences and try to explain them away. A different view of inspiration says God gave us those differences. So let's embrace them as gifts from God. Why not look at why the gospel writers are telling the story differently? Because there's a reason. And God is the author of that reason. We actually take away from God's meaning when we try and squish all of these things together. So... That has certainly given you a lot to think about, I'm sure, and we'll talk about how we should read the Bible. I've given you hints just now, but how we should read the Bible tomorrow morning. Now. Thank you for your good questions. I've, I've received quite a few questions throughout this uh, uh, day, and I appreciate all of them. I'm not probably going to be able to get to all of them, but I thought I'd throw him a couple of more before we break up and, and head our different ways. Um, but uh, <laughs> I thought this would be fun to pursue. <laughs> when was Revelation accepted, and why was it objected to? Well, we can understand why it was objected to. It's just weird. <laughs> uh, okay, um, second question. <laughs> Um, Revelation was accepted in the Western church earlier than in the Eastern church. So it was accepted in the Latin-speaking church before it was accepted in the Greek-speaking church. It really doesn't become a part of uh, the Greek Bible, in terms of the official Greek Bible, until about a thousand years after Christ. Um, and even then, Revelation is not included in the Greek Orthodox liturgy. So even though it eventually gets viewed as scripture, they don't include it in the weekly readings that take place in church. Um, wow. And there are other Eastern churches that just never accept, the Syriac Orthodox Church does not accept Revelation as canon. Um, but uh, in the West, uh, it was uh, accepted earlier. And um, 
partially, um, I think, because the issues of the Roman persecutions were felt more acutely in the West. And the book of Revelation is at least addressing uh, Roman persecution in, in a number of different ways. And so I think the West found it to speak to the issues they were dealing with that weren't quite being felt in the East in the same way. But it's hard to know, but it took a long time for Revelation to be accepted. We're, we're doing a new edition of the book of Revelation in Greek right now. And it's, it's sort of interesting. There are more manuscripts of Revelation in Ethiopic, which is the language I work in, than in Greek. Uh, which is really unusual because we don't have a whole lot of Ethiopic manuscripts. Whoa. Okay. All righty. Well, thank you. Um, any suggestions, and this is a challenging question, any suggestions on how you talk to somebody who says you should only be reading the King James? We have to remember we're being nice. Yeah, I know. That that, that was the that long pause. Have y'all noticed that he's a little sarcastic <laughs> through the evening? Yeah. Well, first off, my response would be, do we need to? All right. Um, the King James Version will get you to heaven. Well, actually, God will get you to heaven through Jesus Christ the Spirit. But the, the Bible is important, right? Okay. You can get to heaven reading the King James Version. I tell my Bible majors all the time that they're going to get out, they're going to graduate with that degree, and they're going to go get a church job, and they're going to be so excited about changing people. And I say, every church I've been to, there's an 80-year-old lady on the third pew who is more of a Christian than I'll ever be. She does not know Greek. She does not know Aramaic. She does not know Hebrew. She doesn't know all of this original context. All she has is the King James Version. And she is a Christian. So, yes, the King James Version has problems. So does the message. Um, but again, the power of God, right? Yeah, the King James Version is antiquated English. A lot of words have changed meaning. A lot of words we don't even know anymore, like what, W-O-T, not W-H-A-T. What, I what not, okay? <laughs> it means I do not know. Okay. Or um, pre, uh, prevent. In our English today, it means to stop something from happening. But in 1611, it meant to precede, right? pre-earlier invent, like he vent that away. <laughs> it's amazing the trivia that I Somebody who learned way too much German. <laughs> so um, there are lots of good reasons not to use the King James Version. But again, our focus should be on the power of God. So who cares? Now, they will come back <laughs> with a very different answer. All right, unless you're using the King James Version, you're going to hell. Um, but that's okay, that's their opinion, it's not God's. And again, who cares? I'm, you, know, you may all think I'm going to hell. Who cares? <laughs> <laughs> um, I've got the Spirit of God within me. 
and within you. And we are a community of faith. And by the way, we're not going to agree 100% ever, at least if we're doing our job, because any new Christian is not going to know enough. And one of the things that I missed when I was growing up is that when Paul talks about unity in Ephesians 4, he says we already have a unity of the Spirit, but we have to work towards a unity of faith. And I grew up in a church that said, God created a unity of faith, and if you have the Spirit, you'll think exactly like I do. It's the exact opposite. Um, We will never agree 100% until Christ makes it absolutely clear, until we see clearly. And so a lot of the things that we get worked up about, I don't think are things God gets worked up about. And what I would really like to do, people have quit doing this, and probably for a good reason. The translators of the King James Version included a preface, which is really good reading. Um, You have to know 1611 English to understand it, but uh, it's it's really good reading. And one of the things they say is, we don't know how long our translation is going to be good for, but we know it's not going to be for long because there's always a need to match changing language, changing knowledge. There's always ways that expressions can be improved. And there's one place where they say, and you know what, even the, they use the word meanest, but what they mean is the most common or even worst translation still is the word of God, right? Their focus is on the power of God in the word, right? Wouldn't it be great if everybody who read the King James Version had read what the translator said, okay? Um, But yeah, I I have no problem at all with people using the King James Version, and I certainly don't think it's a fighting issue. issue. That's good. I did have one question about John 5, verse 4. Oh, my. One of these verses that gets left out. You know? I do know. So you you know why and all the answers, right? Well, absolutely. Um, See, I I bring in people who know all the answers. I can actually tell you some really interesting trivia about the Ethiopian Bible in those verses. But... Nature abhors a vacuum. I've mentioned that before. And Scripture is filled with vacuums. There's a lot of stuff that we would like to know that the biblical writers don't tell us. Right? Luke skips over 14 years of Paul's ministry in two verses. And I'm going, wait! (laughs) I want to know about that. And Luke says, not important. In the original text of the Gospel of John, we have this lame man at this pool. And by the way, this guy's lame for more reasons than one. I mean, this guy is the only guy that is not appreciative of his healing that we know of. But... uh, But in the original text of John chapter 5, it's clear that there's some sort of healing power associated with the stirring of the water. And that's a lot of information without any details. And people are going, well, what happened? And so people started filling it in. People said, oh, the first person in the pool gets healed. And so that fixed part of the problem, but what about this stirring? Oh, well, an angel comes down and takes a bath. That stirs the water, and then the first person in. So it, it developed in, in two stages. You, uh, they keep answering different questions until we get there. But 
Why angels need to take baths in the first place? Not sure. <laughs> Raises some interesting questions. Maybe it was a sauna and you know, work up in heaven's been really rough and we go down to Bethesda for a vacation. Right? Um, but the fact is, people don't like vacuums and sometimes when they encountered vacuums, even in scripture, they filled them in. Right? The longer endings of Mark, there are four or five of them, uh, are a good example of that. Right? The original text of Mark ends with the women in fear. And you're going, especially you don't, don't like it to end with the no, word no, yeah, fear. yeah, because isn't that the last word of Mark is fear? Afraid, yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, once you get Matthew and Luke and John circulating, it seems a little bit odd. And so somebody cuts and pastes from uh, another gospel, um, this, this text to what we call verses 9 through 20 which is just one of the, the many endings that get tagged on at the end to try and make Mark end more appropriately. But uh, Mark ends that way for a reason. He's writing to a community that's afraid. And he's trying to tell them, you know, the Big 12, they were afraid too. And the women who encountered the resurrected Christ, they were afraid too. But since you know the story, Clearly, they got over it. Maybe you can too. It's a very intentional ending. It's like Jesus' unfinished parables where he just sort of leaves it out there and says, you finish the rest of the story. Are you the younger son or the older son? Okay, in the parable of what we call the prodigal son. Um, we never hear how the older son works out. And Jesus is addressing a lot of people who are older sons. <laughs> a lot of older sons. Yeah. Thank you very much, Kurt. Yeah, my you pleasure. You have been wonderful this evening. We have appreciated it very much. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord turn his face to you and be gracious to you. May the Lord shine his face on you and give, give you peace. peace. Amen. Go with God.